particular episode is also available as a video. So if you go to Anxious Laughter on Facebook, you will be able to watch this episode as a video. If you still want to listen to it, that's fine. And also there will be the normal written version as well. So without further ado, on with the music. travel. I talked about the logistics of travel and I talked about going to Blackpool and how it made me feel in terms of nostalgia and the things I used to do as a kid and I talked about the train journey, getting on the train, getting off the train, all that kind of thing. The one thing I didn't really talk about was how anxiety comes away with me. I didn't really talk about how I feel about the things that are happening around me and how those feelings manifest inside my head. So this time I'm going to cover a lot of the same ground, but I'm going to do it from the inside. For someone who doesn't think of themselves as particularly well-traveled, as I said last time, I've actually been to quite a lot of places and going to quite a lot of places means that you, you always go somewhere new for the first time. Going somewhere new is much more anxiety generating than going somewhere that you've been before. There's so much that's unknown and anxiety grows in the cracks. When you have a crack in what you know, you have uncertainty and the uncertainty can breed questions and the questions can breed anxiety. And that's, that's where it grows for me and it pushes those cracks apart until they become open wounds. But long before I go away, I'm fine. You know, months ahead when I organise something, it seems like a great idea. I look at the photos, I look at TripAdvisor, I look at Expedia, and I look at the place I'm going and I think, oh, that looks cool, that looks interesting. And as time comes closer, the cracks start to appear. And as I get to the day itself, it can be really difficult to bear. And I have to concentrate on the positive things I want to do when I am wherever I'm going in order to get me through leaving the house. It happens before I leave the house, of course. You know, there's packing, there's booking things. You know, I don't want to tell you how many times I check that I've booked the hotel for the right day and the train for the right day and the plane for the right day. and. Which terminal am I going to? Which airport am I going to? I'm not one of these people who goes downstairs out of the flat and then looks at the itinerary to say, oh, I need to go to Gatwick. It's all planned in advance. It's usually planned in advance and I quite often book taxis. It's because there's a certainty about that. 
I know what to do if the taxi doesn't turn up. The taxi knows where to take me. I've got better with packing over the years. When I first used to travel, I used to take everything. And anybody that knows me or has ever travelled with me, especially my other half, would tell you that I do tend to still take a lot of stuff. I'm not somebody who can do a weekend in a rucksack. Not really. I tend to take carry-on sized bags, but I always check them in if I'm on a plane. I don't like carrying them around the airport, but also I don't like the scrum to get them in the overhead locker when you get on the plane. That's quite an anxious situation for me, and so I try to avoid it if I can. Of course, it means a little bit of an extra weight at the other end, but it's never usually that long, and it means that when I get on the plane, I can just carry a book, my phone, my boarding pass and passport and go and sit down. I have got better, as I say, at packing though. I don't take quite as much as I used to. Especially if it's somewhere where I know I'm kind of confident that if I've forgotten to pack enough pairs of underwear or I spill dinner down my jeans, I can always go and buy some new ones. I mean, it's very rare that I'm going somewhere where there isn't a shop. I'm not somebody who does adventurous holidays to the middle of the jungle. There are always shops where I go. I'm always ready to leave really early. Usually hours before I need to go, I'm sitting there with the case packed, sometimes even with my coat on, playing games on my phone just to kill the time until the taxi arrives. I'd much rather that than be rushing round at the last minute. It gives me time to address the second issue around travel and that is have I locked the door you know there's this I guess it was long before we we had internet memes but there was this idea of somebody looking puzzled on holiday thinking have I left the iron on it was a bit of a joke but for me that's not a joke and I really do worry intensely that I've not locked the front door, that I've not closed the front door, that I've not set the alarm, that I've forgotten to feed the guinea pigs, that I've left the oven on, that I've not closed the fridge, all these things. And I'm human and sometimes I do make those mistakes and if I make one of those mistakes it makes it so much worse in future knowing that I have made the mistake. You know, one instance of me having done the thing I'm frightened of needs thousands of times when I don't in order to quell the fear that comes from knowing that I might do it again. I did actually once book a hotel for the wrong date. You might have thought when I mentioned it a few minutes ago that's an odd thing to be concerned about. It actually happened for a friend's wedding. We were going over to um, Clandon Park which is a National Trust post which suffered a terrible fire quite recently actually but before then we were going to a friend's wedding we turned up at the hotel and it was a May wedding. I remember it was a May wedding because they got married on the same day as Eurovision. They didn't even let me watch it at the reception. Went to another wedding on the same day as Eurovision about three years ago actually. I did sneak off early from the reception to go and watch the results in the room upstairs actually. Anyway, I turned up and they said oh we don't have a booking in that name and I thought I'm absolutely sure I've got the booking and I pulled it out on my phone and she said oh yeah you booked that for March I mean fortunately they did have a room 
available. So wasn't as bad as it could have been. They didn't even charge me for the room. I think they, they kind of took pity on me because of how stressed I was looking. But generally it doesn't happen. Generally, I'm aware enough of what's going to worry me to counter it by taking photos is a good trick. I know that sounds like a strange thing to do, but I will quite often take a photo of the door closed. And then if I worry, did I close the door? I can look at my phone and I've got a photo. Now, of course, it gets more complex than that because then I start to worry, well, did I open the door again after I took that photo? And I go, no, I didn't. Or did I? Did I? You know, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds it sounds like I'm making this up for comic effect. I'm really not. This, this is the thought process that happens in my head. But there comes a point when you're sitting on the plane, you're at the airport, you're through security or you're sitting in the lounge or whatever and it's too late to worry then. You can't go back and close the door even if it is open. The next thing that happens, of course, if you're travelling on a plane or a train is you have to go and find it. Now that's generally easy enough because gates are numbered, platforms are numbered. Um, I tend to get there very early because I want to understand what's the logistics. Um, but then you get on and you're generally going to be sitting next to somebody. If you're travelling around Europe, no matter which class you're travelling in on the plane, you're not going to have a seat to yourself which is, which is isolated, which you do get on long-haul flights, thankfully. So you're going to be sitting next to somebody. Now, quite often we're travelling as a couple, so I know who I'm going to be sitting next to. But there's always the concern about who's going to be sitting in front of you, who's going to be sitting behind you. Are you going to have somebody sitting behind you who keeps banging the seat that will then create this situation where you're really uncomfortable, but you are too self-conscious to have that conflict with somebody to say, please stop banging my seat. I have done it a few times and it's, it's never gone particularly well because it creates an atmosphere and you can't escape from that atmosphere on a plane. On a train, I'm more likely to just get up and move. I've done that quite a few times. If somebody's being particularly loud or annoying or whatever, there is no point in telling them that they're being loud, annoying or whatever. I just get up and move. I did actually once witness something really sad on a train. It was a train from Liverpool back down to London. I think it was in the days when my dad was ill. I think it was around about then and I was coming back down to London after a weekend up there. And I got on the train and I was sitting on it at Lime Street and there was a guy opposite me who kept drifting off to sleep and he was snoring incredibly loudly. And people were gradually moving away from him down the carriage. You know, people would look at him. He'd wake up with a start and look at them and then they'd just kind of glare at him and move away down the carriage. And eventually I did the same. I was sitting opposite him and I can't tell him not to fall asleep and snoring's not a conscious thing he's doing. So I can't instruct him not to do that on my behalf. Um, 
but I had to move. It was so loud. It was so distracting from what I was trying to do. And it was as I got up to move, I realised the guy was deaf. He had no idea he was snoring. And of course, everybody was presuming he did know he was snoring. Everybody was presuming that he knew why people were moving away from him. But if you put yourself in his shoes, he was just drifting in and out of sleep on a train and noticing that everybody in the carriage was moving further and further away from him. I wonder how many times that's happened to him. I wonder if anybody has ever told him that we're just moving away from you because you're snoring and that's fine, there's plenty of seats, we'll go and find one away from you, that's fine. I feel bad that I didn't. Should I have done? Should I have just scribbled a note and passed it to him to say, look, no hard feelings, but you're snoring quite badly when you fall asleep, so I'm going to go over there so I can read my book. Would that have upset him? Or would that actually have comforted him? Would that have soothed him to know why people were moving away? I guess I'll never know. I hate the quiet coach on trains as well. The reason I hate the quiet coach is that people aren't always quiet. And that again creates the same situation as if you have somebody behind you on the plane kicking your seat. You don't... In my case, anyway, I don't want to have that conversation where I say, please stop doing what you're doing, because then they'll say, oh, I'm not being loud. Oh, I'm not. And then you have this weird atmosphere of tension between you, between you and a stranger on a train journey. As I never book the quiet coach, even though I would rather be traveling on a train that is quiet. I never book the quiet coach because I know that there will be somebody who doesn't fit my definition of quiet. And they don't fit my definition of quiet, but they might fit other people's definition of quiet. So I will be getting myself into quite a, quite a worked up state about how much noise they're making, but not enough to tell them. And if I do tell them, they'll... I mean, I've been there in the situation before where you're sitting opposite somebody and they're having a loud conversation on the phone and you don't want to kind of put your hand in the face and say, look, shut up. But you do kind of glance at them, catch their eye, then glance at the side. It's like you're trying to pull the, the gaze across to the sign that has a picture of a mobile phone with a thing through it. And don't get me started on people that don't turn off the key clicks on the phones. Why do phones need to have a key click at all? You can tell that you've pressed the letter by looking at it on the screen. When you press the key, you see the letter appear. And so you don't need a noise to tell you that the letter's appeared. And I get that maybe there are blind people using a phone. Fine. But not everybody using the phone is blind. And the vast, vast majority of people who have the key clicks turned on only have the key clicks turned on because they haven't been bothered to turn them off. If you really need some feedback, turn on haptic feedback and have it vibrate in your hand when you press a thing or something. It's such an annoying noise. It's the noise of fingernails slowly wrapping on glass. 
It's horrible. Anyway, once travel's over and you get to the other end, you go through customs. Of course, there's always part of me that I always go through the green channel because I never, I'm never carrying anything that's over what I should or that I shouldn't be. I'm not that interesting. Occasionally going into Australia, I've been bringing food in. And when you're going into Australia, you do have to declare all the food and then you have to explain to somebody what food you've got and they do a quick check and you go through. But there's always part of me walking through that bit at the airport. Now, British airports, when you walk through the Green Channel or the EU Arrival Channel, there generally isn't anybody at all. It's just generally a corridor. And you might see somebody standing around, but there's, there's no person to talk to you. There's always part of me walking through thinking... What have I got in my case? And then I start to think, well, if they stop me, I'm going to be really nervous. I'm going to appear anxious. Is that going to make me seem more like I'm hiding something? I've only ever been stopped going through customs twice. And both it was just a random thing. And they asked me a couple of questions and off I went. Once was going into Tokyo and once was going into Stockholm. Never been stopped going into the UK at all, actually. Did once have an interesting conversation with a US customs official about hot cross buns. Because when you go into the US, you do have to declare if you're bringing in food. And a lot of people don't bother because of the hassle. But I always do. I always do. You can guess why I always do. Because I'm anxious about what would happen if they find the food they haven't declared it. So I just tick the box and I have the conversation with the person and I said oh, I've got some hot cross buns he's like well they these things with fruit in with icing on the top it's not icing on the top it's it's flour and water paste sinking into the bread making a thing he said no it's icing on hot cross buns I said I might be icing on your hot cross buns in the US but not icing here I once showed a US customs guy what a jammy dodger was because when he said are you bringing in any food I said I'm bringing in jammy dodgers he said I don't know what that is so I got out the packet of jammy dodgers. There were the mini jammy dodgers and this was part of a really far too elaborate scheme for the payoff it gave me. Jammy dodgers don't really exist in the US. And I used to go and visit the Seattle office quite a lot and I'd always take some kind of sweet treat, so some kind of biscuit. I mean, Tullock's tea cakes became such a thing in the US. but um, And I took over jammy dodgers quite a lot. And I took over the mini ones that you get in the bag. And I took them over for about a year. So everybody in the office thought that was the size of a jammy dodger. So then after about a year, I took across normal sized jammy dodgers and they thought I'd taken across giant sized jammy dodgers. Oh, how we laughed. Well, we didn't. As I say, the payoff wasn't really worth all the effort on that one, but I, I, I enjoyed it. Because once you're through customs and, and you've got a taxi or whatever, you get to your hotel. Checking into a hotel's fine. Generally, you just kind of give them your name, you sign a thing, you get the key and off you go to the room. It's not particularly complicated. And the hotel room becomes my sanctuary when I'm away. In the same way home is when I'm here in the UK, I'm here at home in Essex at the moment. When I'm away, the hotel room is my safe place I go back to. It's like there is a 
a piece of elastic constantly attaching me to the hotel room and the further I get away from the hotel room the harder it pulls and when I get back to the hotel room there is a sense of relief there is a sense of relaxation of detente that I, I, I get back there and I can just relax because I know I can lock the door and I'm safe. Outside the hotel room, I, I, I do enjoy myself when I'm away. I enjoy seeing things, I enjoy looking at things, I enjoy learning new things. And I don't want this episode to come across at all to suggest that I don't enjoy travel. Because I do. I said right back in the very first episode that sometimes... The curry is so nice, it's worth the hiccups. Well, sometimes the things you experience through travelling are worth the anxiety they cause on the way. I love seeing amazing landscapes. I love going to museums with wonderful artefacts. I love seeing cityscapes. I love seeing things I've seen on the TV in person so I can appreciate the scale or the colour or the context of them in a way that you can't. I don't like doing things though. Doing things in small groups is fine or doing an activity with some friends that I have particularly booked to do but I don't like these places where you're expected to immerse yourself. You know there's this obsession with going off the beaten track, with throwing yourself into the local culture, with dancing on the beach with locals by candlelight of Eating in restaurants where only locals eat and you have to use sign language to communicate with the staff. I get that for some people that's what excites them. That doesn't excite me. That makes me anxious and so I don't do it. And it's been something that over the years people have tried to fix about me. People generally in society, not necessarily my close friends, but in society are obsessed with this idea of getting outside of your comfort zone. Why? My comfort zone's quite nice. My comfort zone is full of books. My comfort zone's got a grand piano in. My comfort zone's got a recording studio in. My comfort zone's got an internet connection in. My comfort zone has got Strictly Come Dancing in. Why would I want to go outside my comfort zone? Why this obsession with doing something that scares you or doing something that really you'd rather not be doing for the experience of it. It's just not for me. doesn't mean there's anything right about me and wrong about people that do that. It's just not how I enjoy myself. I actually avoid any holiday experiences where there's going to be any expectation of joining in. You know, I don't want to go on a coach trip or I'm expected to sing. There was this terrible thing in Seattle. Actually, I think that they explode or go on fire and have to stop them. The there was a problem with the vehicles, but they were duck tours. And basically, they were, you know, the um, amphibious vehicles. So it's like a boat with wheels and it can go on the road and it can go down into the lake or into the Thames. And... Um, they in Seattle, they used to go around and they were always singing. They'd have terrible music on and everybody on board would be encouraged to sing along with it. Why? You know, one of the worst experiences of that wasn't actually anything to do with travel at all. We were at a friend's wedding 
and they'd organise country dancing at the end. It's fine. The bride and groom enjoy doing that, and so do lots of their friends and family, and that's fine. And it's kind of an interesting thing to watch. It's something that I have no interest in joining in with. To to even think of joining in would make me very anxious, and so I kind of tried to make myself invisible at the back. I was enjoying watching, but I didn't want to join in. I was fine. I was happy not joining in. But then the person calling it spotted the people that were joining, that weren't joining in, sorry, that were standing at the back and decided to make it her goal to try and get us to join in. And I just thought, leave me alone. I'm happy. Those people are enjoying dancing. I'm enjoying watching and sitting at the back with a cup of tea. I really did have a cup of tea at the wedding reception. Why are you trying to get me to join in? Why? Just leave me alone. You've got a dance floor full of people and there's somebody over there who obviously doesn't want to join in. What? Why would it make anybody's day any better to make me do something that I'm uncomfortable doing? It would make my day worse and I don't understand why that would give you any pleasure. It bugged me to the point that I had to escape from the wedding reception and I'm I ended up going back upstairs to the room. That was actually the wedding where Eurovision was on, so I did actually get to see the results of Eurovision. That was, <laughs> but that is why I went back upstairs. But, but I, did, I, I had to escape from it. And, you know, I wish that in those situations there was a sign, there was something we could work. You know, it's the same when you have audience participation in theatre events or stage shows or whatever. If I read in the review of a show that there's audience participation, I will not go. Because I know that I will appear as though I'm anxious to be chosen. And to some performers, they think that's funny to pick on the people who don't want to be chosen. Why? Pick on the people who are into it. Pick on the people for whom this is going to be fun. Why? Does it give anyone pleasure to see anybody pressured into doing something they don't want to do? I simply don't understand it. And so I avoid those theatre performances. I avoid anything where there is a, a sense I might have to join in. I remember there was a karaoke evening at work. God, this was a long time ago in a previous job and there was no way I was going to sing karaoke. I mean, technically, I was probably one of the best singers in the room. I'm not a bad singer. But there was no way I wanted to do karaoke. And yet by the end of the evening, I was one of two or three people who hadn't done karaoke. And there was literally a chant going around the room to get me to do karaoke. And I just said, not doing it. And I went home. Everybody's evening then ended on a downer. And was I the reason why that evening ended on a downer? I don't think I was. You know, some people would say, if you'd just done karaoke, you wouldn't have upset people's evenings. Well, actually, if they hadn't hounded me into doing it, I wouldn't have been in floods of tears in a taxi on the way home. So yes, they had a bit of a downer to the end of their evening. I had a bit of a downer to my next week in work. And the pressure to do things on holiday is even greater. 
there is a feeling that when you're away from home, you should somehow be more liberated. Well, yeah, you might be more relaxed, and that might lead to you being slightly more liberated, but no, I'm still me. I still want to do the things I do. Business travel is completely different. Business travel for me is a much more functional thing. I don't tend to socialise when I'm on business travel. I mean, I don't tend to socialise much anyway, to be honest. But when I'm on business travel, I don't tend to socialise. I don't tend to go anywhere other than the hotel and the office and the airport and a taxi. And people say to me, oh, you should go and explore the town. No, I'm there on business. I'm there because I have to be there for a meeting or to see somebody or to do something. I'm not there to, to enjoy myself. And so I, I just go between the hotel and the office and that's fine for me. But I do travel in a different mode. When I'm traveling on business, I don't even try to enjoy the process. I see it as a necessary process. I do spend a lot of time in the hotel room. I mean, some of my most tragic moments have been spent in a hotel room. There was a job that used to take me up to Warrington. Um, most weeks, actually. <coughs> and I would um, stay in the travel lodge just around the corner. And um, it was a travel lodge by the, by the M62. You had a choice of windows either overlooking the car park or overlooking the motorway. Uh, tiny TV on the wall, quite a distance away from the bed. No chair to sit in to watch the TV, so you'd be sitting in bed like this, kind of sitting, looking straight ahead. It's not the most convenient position to watch TV. The only food options, there was a Starbucks next door and there was a Frankie and Benny's about 10 minutes walk away, but really, no. There was a pub, yeah, and there was an M&S. You can guess where I went. I always went to the M&S. Um, and I'd buy a salad or a sandwich or something and I'd come back to the hotel room and I'd eat it. And I remember one day I forgot to pick up a plastic fork from M&S. This was before Vegware. This was before biodegradable cutlery. So don't, <coughs> don't judge me for using a plastic fork. Times were different then. I'd get the plastic fork and I'd come back to the room and I'd eat the salad watching either something on my phone or watching the telly if there was something on. And I remember once I got back to the hotel room and realised I'd forgotten to pick up a plastic fork. And so I had to use the teaspoon that comes with the tea making facilities in the travel lodge. There is little in life that is more tragic than eating an M&S salad with a teaspoon in a travel lodge overlooking the M62. There is nothing in that that's glamorous at all. Travel tends to bring together many aspects of things that make me anxious. It brings together being with other people, having to interact with other people, potential conflicts with other people. It brings new experiences, new places, and it brings a language barrier. <coughs> now, this is a subject for another time. We'll go into it in a lot more detail, but I technically, I speak pretty good French don't speak any other languages other than English and French. I can understand a bit of written German. 
and I can understand a little smidgen of Swedish having spent so much time there but other than that I'm stuck. I went to um, Rome that's oh three and a half years ago now who was it really yeah three and a half years ago went to Rome and I remember that uh, the Italian was impenetrable do you know the Latin that was on the inscriptions on monuments and in the museums was actually more comprehensible to me than the Italian on a menu. Work travel takes me to Spain quite a lot at the moment and Spanish is completely impenetrable to me. Actually I go to Valencia and in Valencia you have Spanish and you have English spoken a lot as well but you also have Valencian and Valencian. I don't know people tell me it's not but it feels a bit closer to French. I can pick out a few words of Valencia, but Spanish itself. Oh, no. But even French, which is a language that technically I can understand pretty well. I mean, I can watch TV, listen to the radio, be in a conversation and understand what's going on. It's very hard for me to speak when I'm traveling. That's a subject for another time, as I say, we're not going to delve into that. But it puts another barrier, it becomes another reason why the hotel room is a safe place. Because in the hotel room, I can understand people. Nothing is going to happen that I won't be able to understand. <coughs> and it's unlikely a situation is going to happen in France that I wouldn't understand, but I have the fear that it might. And of course... When you get to somewhere like China or Japan, well, picking out the names of streets, subway stops, shops, a lot of them in Beijing are written in English as well, admittedly, but if they're not, it's, it's like pattern recognition. It isn't really like understanding language. For those of us that have grown up with Indo-European languages, <coughs> oh, pardon me. The move from English to French is quite easy in a way because the structures are the same. The writing system is the same. French has accents that English doesn't tend to. Um, but the it has the same idea of pronunciation being based on orthography. Now, neither English nor French is an entirely phonetic language, I give you that, but <coughs> there's some commonality there that there isn't with Chinese or Japanese. It is pattern matching. I learned to recognise some Chinese characters. I had no idea how you would pronounce them, how you would use them in a sentence. It was more like understanding a code. Understanding that that means west, that means east, that means north, that means south, that means China, that means Beijing. And I guess that is what language is anyway. But I didn't have any context in which to put it. I had no idea whether something was a verb or a noun or even how verbs or nouns function in that language. But that wasn't the thing that made me the most nervous. The most nervous... I got in China, the most anxious, because the nerves became anxiety, was about a passport. I was in China and my passport ripped. And it ripped right through the photo page. It's a passport that had been around the world with me many, many times and it was in quite a sorry state anyway. And I was so anxious 
on the day we were due to leave. I don't know what I thought was going to happen. I mean, I always... Logic tells me that coming home to the UK, even if you lose your passport, that's easier than going somewhere else. There's always a way to get yourself back into the UK. There's always a way to do it. But I just thought, this looks like I've ripped the passport page. This looks like the photo might have been replaced. This looks like this. This looks like that. This, these were in the days, this was a very old passport. So UK passports went through several phases. You had the phase where you had a photo that was put on the page and then sticky plastic put across. It was one of those. So the page had ripped up the sticky plastic. After that, you had the passports that had the very thick, solid plastic page in. And actually, they've changed again now. So the plastic pages are nice and floppy like the other pages. But these were, this was three generations ago. I became unbearable. I was traveling with the other half who'd, who'd flown out to Beijing and I did become unbearable for a couple of days at anxiety about what was going to happen with the passport. Now, I don't think that would happen to me now. This was in the days before I'd, I'd recognized that anxiety was what was going on. And this was in the days when I was completely ill-equipped to cope with it. I just thought this was something I had to react to and react to and react to and react to. And if I think back, that's that's the that's the most unbearable my anxieties ever made me. <laughs> Other people might have different views, but that's the time that sticks in my mind when I became an unpleasant person to be around because of how much I was obsessing about something that my anxiety was creating in me. And so there you have it. Travel's not an easy thing for me. But as I say, it's worth it. I've seen some amazing things. I've seen the glowworm caves in New Zealand. I've seen Sydney Harbour Bridge. I've driven up the west coast of the US and seen killer whales off the San Juan Islands. I've seen the giant trees in California. I've seen the Mediterranean from Nice, which frankly is one of the most soothing sights in the world. But each of those places, getting there is a challenge. I know people talk about adventure holidays. For me, just getting on a plane and going somewhere new, inside my brain, that's enough of an adventure that that is a victory for me. But I'm going to carry on travelling. I'm travelling next week, actually. Well, next week from when this is recorded, but I'll be back by the time you see or hear this. And so where do we go from here? I've done nine of these episodes now, and... Um, I honestly don't know what's going to come next. I guess it'll be a surprise for all of us, won't it? Episode 9 of Anxious Laughter, which was recorded in late September at home in Essex. Uh, this version was also recorded as a video, um, and you can go and watch that on Facebook if you would rather see me.
It was written and spoken by me, Dan McNeil. <laughs>